0: I am beyond excited to be able to share with you guys today from the Word of God. I was asked to step in and teach tonight as Joe's been teaching the Sundays and you guys know that he's been back and uh, if you listen to the last two Sundays you know he's been rearing to go even going well past the time of teaching which is normative for Joe so that's an exciting thing for all of us and if you guys listen to the Good Fight Radio show Joe has been back now this week and we'll be back for a full slate of episodes next week so we have been just beyond blessed to have him as a brother In Christ. And before I get into it, because that does have a little bit of the background or the backdrop, so to speak, of what I want to talk about tonight, I do want to talk about Bible study as a whole. Uh, I know that for myself, I've been going through and studying the Old Testament a lot lately. In fact, I've been trying my best since the New Year to get through the entire Bible in 30 days. Now, I'm probably about two days off the mark, but I I think I caught up a little bit today, so I'm hoping to get through that. But nonetheless, there was a, I went through Ecclesiastes today, that's right about where I reached, and I was already planning on teachings from some texts from Ecclesiastes, but there was one that, that specifically just kind of, we'll say, pricked me, right? There was one that specifically was a goad to me, and I, I want to talk about that because in Ecclesiastes twelve eleven it says, the words of the wise man are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. You see, a goad was something that we even see in the New Testament as well. When we see it with Paul, when he meets the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, something that Jesus asks of Paul is, how long will you kick against the goads? How long will you kick against those pricks? And the goad was a kind of like a prick, a sharp uh, utensil that was used uh, for animals, so that they would continue in the path they are supposed to go. And when they went outside of it, they would get hit with that thing or they would stick, get pricked by it. And this is exactly what words of a wise man, the words of the wise, are supposed to be to us. There are times when it comes to learning, times where it comes to growing in the Word of God, where it's going to sting quite a bit. In fact, We, you know, that's what's going to happen because it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think about that a lot when it comes to us going to the scriptures and having them written on our hearts. Because a lot of times, even though the thing that you hear may hurt, a lot of times it's what you need to hear. So when we go from that, which is just absolutely positively wise, could not be more wise than the word of God, the Theanustas. The God-breathed word that we read here, we know that it is going to hurt. It might even prick a little bit. And it's done in order to stimulate us for something. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, it says this, "'Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, "'for he who promised is faithful, "'and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds.'" not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near now obviously hebrews 10:25 is one of the most important text when it comes to reminding us as brothers and sisters in Christ that when we see the things that are happening around us, when we see the protests and the revelings, and when you see, oh, oh no, what's going to happen in our country, it doesn't mean let's have less fellowship. What it says over and over again is you draw all the more together as you see that day drawing near. But one of the Things that takes place when a brother and sister in Christ are in communion with another, one of the things that takes place when we assemble, when we are the episunagoge that we meet together, that we fellowship one another, is that we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. One of the ways that this happens is by this pricking, is by this goading, is by the fact that when we read these things, when our brothers or sisters in Christ hold us accountable to the standard that God has given us, it may hurt, it may sting, but guess what? Over and over again, it will help us. It will be to our benefit. Much like salt, if you get it into a wound, it stings, but guess what? It cleans I know that sometimes we can be like children saying I don't want to have that alcohol rubbed on my leg on my on my cut that I had at the beach or whatever it may be my I slipped and fell on my skateboard and next thing you know I need to have some rubbing alcohol on it and it stings I don't want it the fact is is exactly what we need there's an infection and we need to get rid of it we need it to be clean we need the Lord to clean it and he does that I believe through the studying of the scriptures in fact When it comes to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, which I did quote in part just a little bit earlier, when it talks about that every word is theanoustos in the Greek, God breathed; every word is inspired by God, every single graphe, every single scripture is inspired by God, I want you to notice something that when you look at all of the things that we are given when it comes to what it is profitable for. What we are told to do with the Word of God, not every single aspect of it, there's other things given in Scripture, but specifically, here are some of the things for teaching, which we'll go over tonight. And as the wise man, as it says of wise wisdom in Ecclesiastes 12, it is like the goads, pricking and sticking, but it is profitable for teaching and also for reproof, for correction, For training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When it comes to the word of God... Notice that in that exact context of speaking not only of its nature, of the ontological definition of Scripture being from God himself, but also what it's saying there quite clearly is that it is to be used for correction and reproof and for the training in righteousness. Yes, that will sting sometimes, but it is always to our benefit. It is always to our benefit. And, and I think Paul brings this out also when he brings correction In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9, because he doesn't just like the fact that it hurts, what he likes the fact is that that hurting brought them to an important place that they needed to get to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Right away, you're noticing that what Paul is saying is he's not just happy that people are sad. He's not, oh, I'm just so excited that you're sad. It's for a point. But you were sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were so sorrowful that you actually did something about the actions that you were doing. You didn't just say, oh, I'm really sad that this happened or I'm really sad I got caught. And he's going to talk about a difference in the sorrow here. It says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Notice that. The sorrow that God will give you when you grieve over your sin, what will happen? It will bring you to a place with no regret. That is much different, as he says, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's exactly what the sorrow of the world does. For many people, when they're even caught in sin, a lot of times, and law-breaking of any sort, a lot of times what people are sad about is the fact that they got caught. Over and over again, when you look at people that they got caught, that's what they're sad about. You know, especially happens in adultery, when somebody is cheating on their wife. They're sad, typically, that they got caught. Now, I'm sure there's some emotions where you think, oh no, what have I done to my wife? Now she knows what I've done. But the fact is, is that a lot of times when it comes to these things, this sorrow of the world produces nothing but death. It gives us nothing. And this hopefully will bring me somewhat uh, just in a roundabout way to what I wanna talk about today. And that has to do with renewing our mind, as always, back to the scriptures, but specifically, I wanna deal with our perspective and how we deal in our perspective in time and eternity and how we look at it, how we look at time and eternity. How we look at it will change how we walk with Christ. How we look at time and eternity will change whether or not the decisions you make, not only because of who God is, but also those those recognizations That looking forward to a day with the helmet of salvation that Jesus will come back, not only looking forward to it with great joy, but also when it comes to fear and trembling, when it comes to those decisions you will make, not only for your own salvation, but also for those around you. And I think when we do this, I think one of the greatest places to start has to be, my personal opinion, this has to be quite clearly with Solomon. I think we get great, wonderful insights from Solomon. And I've already quoted from Ecclesiastes, and I will be spending a lot of time there tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we will go there to chapter 2. But I wanted to contrast... Once again, as we see Paul in 2 Corinthians contrasting the world's sorrow versus godly sorrow, one that leads to repentance and one that leads to death, I wanted to contrast philosophies as well. Philosophies when it comes to the end of life, when it comes to the decisions you make in this life, okay? And I want to read you a couple of quotes from two very different men separated by 16 centuries of time. The first being... Marcus Aurelius, he was the Roman emperor uh, from 161 to 180, and he was a Stoic philosopher. Also, if you read in any Stoic philosophers, specifically Marcus Aurelius talks a lot about suicide. It was something they were uh, bereft of if you were a Stoic at that time. And this is what he says concerning fate and the end of life. He says, live not as though you were a thousand years ahead of you, like you were a thousand years ahead of you. Fate is at your elbow. Make yourself good while life and power are still yours. So I think this is a, almost a 2,000-year-old statement of YOLO. You only live once. Better get after it. Far different than the statement by the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, where he says, think of yourself as deciding now for or against eternal life. And I think that these are the perspectives specifically when we go back and look at Solomon and we look at Ecclesiastes as a whole, I believe that you can find both perspectives in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I have to say, if you're going to read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most important things is to understand what his overall theme is. And I think it's important to understand his conclusion. In fact, I would encourage you to read the conclusion before you even get to the thesis, before you get into the overall drama that he's bringing out to us. And I think this is really, really important to us because he is going to go and explain so much of what modern philosophy is today what most rap songs that you listen to are about, what most rock songs are, are, you listen to are about, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and so forth, right? This is exactly what the modern person, just walking your everyday life, they would think the, a lot of the things that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes are the fulfillment of their destiny. But the fact is, is that we can find both of these, but... In, in the Ecclesiastes, but the ultimate conclusion only proves one to be true. And I think that's a, a good thing to grasp here. And now, as a fellowship, we have been going through the Book of Ecclesiastes for a number of years, and I would have to say that the Book of Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It was one of the first books when we had just a bunch of college kids that were meeting for a Bible study, and then pretty much everyone married off one with another at that Bible study back in the day. Uh, I believe Nick Paneri, one of our elders, and Leah would go to that Bible study as well. Myself and Holly and Chris and Nicolette Williams as well, all involved in the fellowship here, and all of them uh, (laughs) were in that Bible study, all single, uh, you know, but the Lord has a way of bringing things together. Nonetheless, that Bible study, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I can tell you right now, I would probably be embarrassed if you heard my commentary as a newer believer telling you what I think Ecclesiastes is saying. But now, growing in wisdom as we're called to, as we're called to search out wisdom as we would find treasure and precious silver in Proverbs chapter 2, I think that now looking back on, those, on the text of Ecclesiastes, we see such a much more powerful statement when we get the whole book in our understanding. One of the things that Joe has taught for a number of years, we have talked at length about a proper biblical hermeneutic, a way of studying scripture, kind of the science of studying scripture. But one of the things that Joe has mentioned over and over is that we need to find the hermeneutic, that everything that we read when we get back to the scriptures and what they have to say about our life. And what they have to say about salvation, what they have to say about the world, all of it, we need to be able to find Jesus in it, because he is in there over and over and over again. Studying typology as we have it as a fellowship for the number of years that we have, I know that's been the bedrock of this church, and studying it as we have, it has been something that has grown my faith with every time we have gone through that. And understanding that when we look at something like the book of Ecclesiastes, we look back to it in light of the gospel. You see, because the entirety of the Old Testament, and testament means covenant, the Old Covenant. Remember that in the book of Hebrews, we're told that we have a better covenant in Jesus Christ, and that that Old Covenant was waiting for its Messiah, waiting for the deliverer that would come and make an end to sin. So when we look at the scriptures in this manner, we recognize that it's, a, it's pregnant, waiting for its Messiah to be born. And so when we see over and over again in the scriptures, things that you perceive to be quite clearly that which could only be personified in Jesus, over and over again, you recognize the beauty of it, and you recognize why there were some who were waiting, specifically For that Messiah. And so we are those who look back at these scriptures and say, what can we gain from them? As the word says in Romans chapter 15, that we go to these scriptures, that everything that was written for our strength and encouragement, that we might have hope. And I believe that even though there are parts in Ecclesiastes, and we will read from them, there are parts from Ecclesiastes that make you feel like, wait a second, does he have a hope? that ultimately his conclusion is without a doubt, without a doubt. Now, I, I want to give you my opinion here on Solomon specifically because we've been asked that a number of times as a church and as a ministry at Good Fight Ministries. What do we believe about the fate of Solomon? Was he a believer? Did he, did he, did he finish his race, so to speak? And my personal viewpoint comes from the scriptures but in Second Samuel chapter 7, he's prophesied to, it's prophesied to David what will take place with his son. And in that prophecy, starting at verse 12, it says this to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Here's the point that when we get into Solomon's life, we recognize that he had some problems. But God says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So I think when I look at that text, now there are other places where if you just had one piece of the text, you'd be like, well, he turned his heart against the Lord. It's, it's over. But then when I see that text prophesied that he would commit iniquity and that he would be spurned, he would be spanked, so to speak, by God, And he would eventually turn back to him. I think personally that Ecclesiastes kind of is that at the end of his life, looking back at it and saying, these are the things that I have learned. And he calls himself the preacher in the first chapter and then goes forth. And there is this terminology, and and Joe's brought this out a number of times in the study of Ecclesiastes. And I'm only going to go through it so fast as I know we've gone verse verse to verse to verse to verse on that, but... The under the sun idea. The under the sun could be almost akin to a naturalistic viewpoint in a lot of ways. A naturalistic philosophy more more than a viewpoint. He does recognize even when he's under the sun that there is a God. But ultimately when it comes to its end, when it comes to all of the things that man does on this earth, and and I love this book because of what it does, but when it comes to it, all of these actions that he lays out in the book all of the different things that men toil with over and over again on this earth, not only does he explain how futile they are, but over and over again what I love is that he doesn't hide the fact that he found short pieces and short-term happiness even amongst those sins. And I think that's really important to distinct to be distinctive here because there are so many people that I've met that Act as though when people are in sin or when people are sinning that, oh, that's no fun. That's not what I see in scripture. People do have fun in their sin, but that fun does exactly what Solomon says. It's like a vapor. It's vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind. And it goes. And I'm sure for plenty of people here who who did not follow Jesus for their whole life that Over and over again, they had things in their life that they did and they continued to need to fill it over and over again. I've given the analogy quite a few times at different drug rehabs that I've been able to share at uh, and I I always equated my old life before knowing Christ to be a leaky bucket, so to speak. It was like there was a bucket and I would need to fill it every day but it had holes throughout it And every night I would have to fill it, whether it was fighting and drinking and girls or whatever it was, every morning it would be empty and I'd wake up empty. And then I'd have to fill it up with those things and then empty again. But then upon coming to Christ, upon being saved by him, he filled every hole and he fills it up with streams of living water. That even if I am in my worst day, even if I'm having a tough day that day, the fact is is that I have completely a knowledge of who he is and I have confidence in him and that even if I'm sorrowful, I can yet always be rejoicing. And I think this is something that Solomon is giving us in the book of Ecclesiastes as a means to come to the conclusion that this line of thinking that Marcus Aurelius and others would purport this line of thinking is one that is wrong, and it's wrong because of its conclusion. And so I will start here in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. He says, I said to myself, Come now, I will taste you with ple- I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said, Of laughter is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? So already we see that Solomon is finding with the futility of the pleasures that he will continue to go off of. And if you don't know anything about Solomon, maybe you're not a believer and you're listening or maybe you're a young believer and you don't know Solomon's life, this is a man who had over 1,000 women. This is a man who had splendor and wisdom beyond anyone on the earth at the time. He had everything in this life that most people would offer to you. You know, it's so interesting. I think about this a lot when you think about the Joel Osteens of the world, these false teachers that go out and the Bible calls them, tells, says of them that their God is their belly and that they love riches. And, you know, when he has these books that say called Your Best Life Now, when that would specifically mean you're not going to heaven if this is your best life now, I would say that Solomon here talks about his best life now and he tells you exactly where it brings you, to futility. It is but a vapor. It is nothing. It will give you nothing in the end. Now I want to go a little bit down to uh, in chapter 2 to verse 9 because Solomon switches from the pleasures. He goes into a little bit exploring things, stimulating his mind, using alcohol as a drug and so to speak, and he talks about those pleasures. But then he talks about another one, and this one can be amiss, and I would say this one is a part of the American dream, the building up of a legacy, the building up of buildings. And maybe if I just work really hard and I go and do my nine to five, and maybe if I just Do everything I can to make money and strive. Then I will have fulfillment in this life under the sun. And here's what it says. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So you see, you have here in Solomon a man that quite clearly has it all. And then at the end of that, I had all pleasure, I built, I achieved all of these things. And guess what? The conclusion under the sun, behold, all is vanity. All is but a vapor. It is like steam. You can't even catch it. None of it. It goes. And says goodbye. And I find it interesting because then he continues to switch it up. He gives you everything. That's why I love Ecclesiastes. He gives you every option that we're promised that this is what you're supposed to do in this life. These are the things you're supposed to practice that will make you happy. These are the ways. Just look at it. Sign after sign. Thing after thing. And yet we are a people, if you just look at America, that tries to achieve these very things. And then you have lines out the door. Just go over To Westlake here is a very expensive area if you're not from California. Go over to Westlake here and look at just your, your CVS and look at the line out the door. And why are those lines there? Because there's antidepressants there that they're picking up for the house that they work at. That's all that we see over and over again. That we are a people that God has given us the freedom to choose these things and they've chosen pleasure the quick and easy fast get this is why kids are so quickly addicted to video games, especially today, because they they bring quick pleasure, boom, and it 's gone. The endorphins that are let out. I talked to a friend uh, who was he was probably the greatest wrestler that I knew, absolutely positively the best wrestler that I knew. And I was trying to understand, because he actually won a tournament that I couldn't even get to, and he won the what, what was called like the MVP of the tournament, over 600 schools, and he was the number one wrestler in his weight class, but actually considered the best wrestler out of all the weight classes. And I was like, "Man, how did he do that?" And he did it high on heroin. And I was like, "How on earth could you compete at that level?" And then I asked him when he became strung out on oxycotton, and I asked him to explain to me how on earth, how did you get to this place? You don't wrestle anymore. You're, you're here at your parents. You're you're smoking oxycotton crushing it up and, and smoking it. What what are you doing? What why would this be so addictive to you? I just I couldn't comprehend it. I was a drunkard at the time so I had my own problems. But nonetheless I was wondering well, how did this thing grab you? How did Satan get a hold of you and I didn't even know Satan at the time. But I didn't know he existed at that time. I did I'm sure I knew him. He was my father at the time. But nonetheless when I look at that and he told me these words I'll never forget it. He said you know that feeling you have when you won a big tournament, or you won this big match, and they raise your arm in front of everybody, that, that feeling of, I, I just won, I just achieved this, He's like, I feel that with every hit, and now that I don't have wrestling, this is what I have. And it makes a lot of sense, I mean, heroin was made by a German company, I believe, uh, Bayer, and I believe the original word for, for heroin was eros, which meant hero, because it made you feel like a hero. And, and you see, this is a, a, a great way for Satan to grab people and have them locked in. That's why the Bible is very clear. Be sober and vigilant for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he de- may devour. When he has your mind that way, you don't have the helmet of salvation on. You let Satan enter your mind. You do as Solomon was talking here and seeking out pleasures, exploring with his mind how to stimulate it. All these different different things that he's doing. And this is exactly what happens. And then what happens is you're hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. So he tries something else. Because this isn't working. The pleasures aren't working, right? The building up, having this great estate, having all this money, that's not working. So it must be his wisdom. Verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise, the wise man's eyes are in his head, the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then? Have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after the wind. So, all of this, even the wisdom, if this is all there is, guys, if this is really you only live once and this is all there is, he's saying, what's the difference at this point? Who cares if I know all these things, if I write all these proverbs? What's the point of it all? Because guess what? We are both going six feet under. If I esteem all of these things, building all of this and having this money and having this pleasure and even passing that, having all wisdom, you sit around and read books all day and grow in knowledge. But yet, what happens? What happens to him? He realizes quite quickly that what's the difference if this is it, if this is all we have? In verse 18, he then laments at what will happen to all, even the labor that he had done. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have been labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one man who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labors and is all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too... Is vanity. So once again, we called. I called this in a previous message: eternity projects that people attempt to continue eternally through different projects that aren't actually what's going to happen after they die. So they say, like Einstein would, that we gain we gain eternity through our children. That's not a fact. You get nothing from that. We gain eternity through our children. We gain eternity through our legacies. If I, if I write this book, this will be my end. If I make, think about this, so many directors, so many artists, albums. If I just get this one album, that will be the one. That will live on forever. You can even be Paul McCartney and be forgotten about, right? Remember the Beatles? They're more popular than Jesus now. Well, guess what? Plenty of, plenty of young kids have no idea who you are, but yet just about everyone knows who Jesus is. On this planet. And I think about that. You think about the futility of all these things. If I can get that one last thing and have this eternity project that I do, then I can live on. But that's not what the Bible says, and that's not, that's not what Solomon is explaining. What Solomon is explaining to them is that this also is futile. This thought process that if you have all these things, then eventually you'll have fulfillment, he's saying it's dead wrong. Verses 24 and 25, he says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? You see, when we have the new covenant and we come into a right relationship with God, all of the eating and everything that we do is now done for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, For the glory of God. And that's exactly right. Solomon would say also in Ecclesiastes, whatever you put to your hands, do it with all your might. But now you as a believer, looking back anachronistically to this text, you say, I can do that. And I can do it in the same manner that Paul said to do it in 1 Corinthians 10. I can do everything if i do it with all my might for the glory of the lord so that when you are going to be a witness at your workplace when you are going to be a witness of your younger at your school when you are going to be a witness to your family if you've recently come to the lord and they don't and the rest of your family does not yet know them that you can do all of those things for the glory of god in a real powerful way that it actually matters and isn't vanity you see all of the work of your hands and i believe he is Getting us, trying to get us to understand this, all of the work of your hands are, is positively a waste of time if eventually it's going to burn up and you didn't do it for the glory of God. This is what he says is his conclusion. Before I get to the verse that I really want to talk about when it comes to eternality, when it comes to the eternal, this was his conclusion. Because all these things he says, he, he, he keeps going down this path when you read Ecclesiastes, but there's these certain texts that when you read them in Ecclesiastes, they show forth what he has already concluded at the end. There are plenty of texts that if you took it out of context, you'd be like, well, you could try to live your way in a sinful way, live your life in a sinful way. And that is not what he's saying in Ecclesiastes. So I have to go to the conclusion real quick before I get to the verse I want to really embed in your heart today. And the conclusion is, these are the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. So he said all these things. He's talked about the grievous task it is on the earth for those who honestly have no hope. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, the final two verses of the book. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to to every person. Remember, the foolish person or the wise, the rich or the poor. It does not matter. This applies. What is it that applies? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You know, we have been doing a series, uh, Pastor Joe and myself, on the attributes of God, and one of them is omniscience. And I hope, one of the things, if you guys haven't listened to that series, uh, I I encourage you guys to on the Good Fight Radio show, we've been working on it, but one of the things is when you think about God being omniscient, being ever-present, when you think about that, it should cause you to want to live a life that is holy, recognizing that he does see all things. Keeping these things in mind, not only that he sees all things, but eventually we'll be judged for those things. We want to make sure as, as Christians, we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And so I, I believe this text, you could embed in your heart to say to yourself, I know the omnipresence of God, that he is ever present; that he sees all things, that he is mighty and powerful, and I recognize not only the fact that he gives me hope because he promises in Ezekiel chapter 18 that he not only forgives my sin for those who turn, but he also forgets it. But I look at this text and I see quite clearly when you read it that his omnipresence should make you remember that he is there and that he sees all things and he will judge all things. That is his conclusion after all has been said. After all of the book of Ecclesiastes, after all of Proverbs, after all of Song of Solomon, after all of his life, I believe that that conclusion comes from the promise that God made to David that he would give a spank to his son, and his son would return. That's my, that's my opinion. But Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. This is the one, when we think about time, when we think about eternity, this is the verse. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out all, out the work which God has done from the beginning, even until the end. God has set eternity in our heart. And, and I would say this. I don't know if Joe's ever done a message without mentioning, without not even saying, hey, this is provenient grace or so forth. But it is hard to read the scriptures in any capacity and not talk about the provenient grace, the grace that God goes before us to grab us, to come and get us. And I think over and over again when we read the scriptures, we see quite clearly God going before us to pull him to himself. We are promised in John chapter 12 that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be lifted up and draw all men unto himself. We are promised in Romans chapter 1 that God has made it evident to us, inside of us, that we know that God exists. We know that God has written his law on our heart. We know that also God has sent out his Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But a lot of people don't remember that he also gives us time. When I think of time is also One of the graces, one of the the, the grace that goes before us, the fact that he has set eternity in our hearts. That's something that when you're out evangelizing, know that you need to get to the eternal questions. I think that's one of the most important things is remember that God has placed eternity in man's hearts because that's what you need to go after when you're sharing the gospel. That's what you need to go after when you're sharing with people here. At the fellowship. You need to recognize and remember the eternal. And if we get away from that, we get away from a lot of moral implications and we get, a lot, get away a lot of what Jesus did when he saved us. That he offers eternity to us. And the fact is, is that he's written that on our hearts and I've heard some commentators call it like a God-shaped hole or a God-sized vacuum. I know that plenty of the rich have even mentioned this, guys like Shia LaBeouf talked about the God-sized hole that he couldn't fill. I watched Tom Brady crying because he was still miserable after winning multiple Super Bowls. He probably won't win one this year, but nonetheless, um, I've looked at these things, and you see this misery in people because we are lost until we are found in Christ, and what? if you gave me a theme of Ecclesiastes outside of verses 13 and 14 of the last chapter, I would say the futility of that which is under the sun. Every one of these things that the world tells you you need, once you get this next achievement, once you get this, one of the ways, and Joe taught me this a long time ago when we were out sharing the gospel, one of the ways that we like to ask is say, so what are you doing now? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to school. And then after that, what are you going to do? Oh, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get a family. Okay, and then after that, what are you going to do? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll retire. Okay, so then after that, what are you going to do? Well, I, I, I guess I'll die. And it brings it back to the eternal question, then what? Because that is a question we need to start asking more people. Especially when you look at what's going on outside the world, what better thing than to bring up the eternal question? To recognize with confidence when you're talking to someone, God's put eternity in their heart. God has made it evident to them that God exists. Then guess what? Go tell them the truth of the gospel. Go tell them about their sin. It may prick. It may hurt. But guess what? If that salt gets in a wound, it will cleanse. We need to make sure we're using the word of God in that manner to reprove, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering, guys. We need to be this way. And I thought it was really interesting. I was looking at a, I was reading a book recently, and it talked about Dr. Armand Nikolai of Harvard Medical School. And he does this with people because I think prioritization is really, really important. And I'm gonna read from, from the quote because I think this is a really interesting practice he does to help people understand what needs to be important in their life. It says, quote, I teach people who are just starting out as Harvard students, they're all bright to start with, and they often have talents or interests that they are actively pursuing. But early in the semester, I ask them, what is your goal in life? Invariably, they answer, to be successful. So I ask, what does that mean to you? Their answer usually has some relationship to fame and fortune. I then offer a framework for them to think about this question. I tell them, your lifespan is about 30,000 days, and we spend a third of that time sleeping. That means that we have a waking lifespan of about 20,000 days. Then I say, if you had just 20 days left, what would you do with them? They universally answer that they would spend that time working on their relationship with family, friends, and if they're people of faith, with their God. It is at this point that he shows them the cognitive dissonance going on concerning their priorities. You see, when it's actually pointed out, look at what if you only had this much time? They then prioritize the things they should have been prioritizing long ago. When they think, wait a second, I only have that much time left, then I'll prioritize. The sad thing is they may only spend those 20 days figuring those things out. And they'll spend the rest of the 19,080 days just completely enamored with fame and fortune and they'll find out what Solomon found out. And I am sure plenty of those who have gone through his school have come to find that out. That instead of developing those relationships, most importantly, if you are actually a person who loves Jesus or if you don't, you need to. You need to recognize and say, I don't want to live a futile life. I want to live a life unto Christ. And you know, Paul actually mentioned something specific, and I, I was planning on going through it, but it's not going to work out tonight. Um, and, I, and I do believe even the psalmist in Psalm chapter 90, something that Pastor Steve called Psalm twenty twenty one, right? Reading Psalm 90 over yourself. I, I really do believe there's something powerful to reading Psalm 90 over and over again. But one of the texts specifically in Psalm 90 tells... He says, teach me to number my days, or teach us to number our days. And I think that's something that you could do right now, is learn to number your days. Learn to recognize the eternal question that's coming, because I believe Solomon might have been at the end of his life when he looked and numbered his days, and realizing that sacrificing children to Moloch, and sleeping with thousands, a thousand women or more, more than a thousand women, sleeping with them really is futile having all the money all those things are futile how about us we cry that out and as Steve mentioned that this is something Psalm 2021 this is something I should cry over my life that's something we need to be praying out for Lord teach me to number my days this is a practice that this doctor is doing to Harvard medical students number your days recognize your end it's really really important and what sort of changes can we make How could we make changes that will benefit us for eternity, that will benefit our neighbor for eternity? I think that's really, really important to recognize the who, what, when, where, why, and how when it comes to numbering our days. How do we do that? I think these are all good questions to be asked. How and who and why and when. These are important. When it comes to the who... I think of Psalm 8, you know, where he says, who am I that you would even think of me? We recognize that our God is so big and yet he thinks of me. And I think there's an intimacy you find in Psalm 139 of God knowing us, weaving us together in our our mother's womb, God knowing us in this powerful way and recognizing, wait a second, who am I? This one person, who am I that you would think of me? And I believe that should Bring you to one place. Recognize how big your God is, that he would know you. I think a, a, a what question is really, really important as well. And what is a question that is asking James 4.14 when he asks, what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I think there's a reason why James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's so many of these powerful statements to remind us of this, that our life is but a vapor that it goes, it comes and goes and vanishes so quickly. So who and what? What is your life? Ask yourself that. What about when? When? Maybe you haven't been making any changes in your life. Maybe it's not something you've been doing to correct problems that you may be having. When is the time to do it? Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I'm smiling only because I remember this was a text that I used to ask my friend, Chad Lackey, I would have him ask somebody if they knew what time it was, and then he would read this to them. And uh, it would start a conversation, not always the, the best ones, but uh, it would start a great conversation uh, with someone. I think of where as well. Where? In fact, where? Why am I in the place I am? Where? In this city, I live in Simi Valley. I was born here. Why do I live here? Why am I here, God? Acts seventeen twenty four through 31 tells us why, why we are the where, right? Or why we are here. Why we are in this place. Why are we are in this province, so to speak. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation. That would include not only when you are alive right now in 2021, but also where you are alive For in him we live and move and exist, then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I skipped over a verse there, but I want to read it. He had made every man a nation that they would seek if if perhaps, verse 27, they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. One of the most important things is to remember that where you've been placed specifically is though you would seek, grope, and find God. If you're in a place where you come from great riches, you are still there so that you would seek, grope, and find God. If you are a place that is poor, you are there so you would seek, grope, and find God. Remember, at the very beginning of this, he made made man from one person. There is one race, the human race, and the only difference between us is cultures and melanin, and we need to recognize that and go forward in that thinking and saying, God, I know you made me this way. You put me in this family, and you put me at a time such as this, and you have something you want to do. The why, I, I, I was reading in First John, thinking about the why he has placed us here, why a lot of things, and one of the big things is why would God die for me? Why? The one who does not love does not know God, First John 4, 8, does not know God. For God is love. That is his nature. That is his being. In his very nature, he is love. He doesn't just love. His very nature is love. By this, the love of God has was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Why did he send his son? He sent his son to die a horrible death on a cross because we committed crimes We were the ones who broke the law and why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he said and cried out in the garden of Gethsemane, if there was any other way for them to be forgiven is what he was saying. If there was any other way for mankind to be saved, let this cup pass from me. The wrath of God that was about to be poured on Jesus. He asked if there was any other way, let it pass. But clearly there was no other way. The only way for us to be saved would be for Jesus to die for our sins And the only way by which you are saved is if you turn to him, seek, grope, and find him. You will not find pleasures in this world that will continue to sustain you because the one who sustains and holds every atom in its place, that very God that we love and serve if you love Jesus, he is the one who has made you and he is the one who has set eternity in your hearts that you may seek, grope, and find him. That's one of the things when I think about prevenient grace, the grace that goes before us, is it doesn't just end every time I feel like I've written out a study, here are the different prevenient graces where God, before we even come to him, is giving us grace to, draw, him to uh, draw us to himself. And then I go and I go and write more when I find some more, like prophecy, like the word of God, and obviously the Holy Spirit and so forth. And I read these and I meditate on these and I think, wow, God, I am so underserving. But you are so good to me. You are such a good God. And I wanted to go over some of the practical ways that we could change some things that would help us to better live life with eternity in mind because that's something that is very, very powerful to me. Leonard Ravenhill is one of my favorite old-time preachers. I never got to meet him. I believe he died in 1994. But he had this saying that he would say, Lord, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. And he said that we would be a very different tribe of people if we would just stamp eternity on our eyeballs because not only would we start making decisions in light of eternity, but that we would also see the world in light of eternity, that we would see our lost friends and family in light of eternity, that we would see our own selves in light of eternity. What can we bring to our Lord Say, Lord, I brought this to you, Lord, for all that you did, to me, did for me, all the comings and the goings, all the drawing me, all the different ways that you came, that I may come to know you, I want to bring this before you and before your throne. That's, I'm looking at the clock and I'm running against it. I, I'm telling you right now, the, I, I'm blaming Joe on all this because I remember whenever we're waiting for him at, to do a show, I'm always like, the printer, he always tells us, my printer messed up. You know, that's a very common thing. And I think last Sunday, his printer had it going back in front, which is a mess, by the way, if you ever had to teach through a piece of paper like this. And I, I thought, okay, man, you must have the worst printer in the world. And then today, I was putting together the message, and I was here in the office with Tony, and we tried 50 different things to get the printer to work properly, and none of my message printed out properly until I finally got here right before and was able to print it out. And then now, I've always wondered why he, you know, hates the clock, you know, and now I fully understand why he hates the clock and not getting through all your notes. But nonetheless, guys, um, as I said... The the, the verse in Ecclesiastes, the first one that I mentioned, when it comes to wise men and their wisdom, and the passing on of wisdom, it is like a goad. So those things that we talk about, hopefully they would prick us in terms of getting us on the right path, because when we see things in light of eternity, and we look at time and say, I want to use this time to not only bring people to know Christ, but I want to use this time in a powerful way to grow and know you more, Lord, and seek and find him. I'm going to pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. I pray that this message would be a benefit to them, Lord. I pray that it would prick us as it did me and that we would grow to love and know you in a powerful way. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.